What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 157. It's titled, The Most Important Economic Question of Our Time. When I was small, three or four, I believed in Santa Claus, until I had an experience that caused me to doubt. We had gone downtown Cincinnati with my grandma and my mom, and we were shopping the department stores, and I went into one department store, or we went in, and I was so excited that Santa Claus was there in his red suit, long beard. About a half hour later, we were in a different department store, and there was a Santa Claus with a long beard and red suit. And I was confused because at one point, I saw a third Santa Claus, and I thought, well, something, there's a lot of Santa Clauses, and I believe in one, and it started me to question, how could this be? And maybe that was the beginning of me being a skeptic, but I've always questioned things. When something doesn't seem to mesh with the theory, I start to question the theory. And I began to question the theory of Santa Claus. Another experience when I was about four, my dad had a a race car set, one of these electronic race car sets that went around the track. And at one point he had set it out. and, And I don't know if I was playing with the cars or whatever, but... I remember being accused of taking the little rubber tire off the car. And clearly the rubber tire was off the car, but I distinctly remember not doing it. And and I was adamant I had not taken that tire off the car. I got sent to my room and my mom gave me a little toy tractor I had and said, here, you could take the tire off this one. And I, and I said, I didn't do it. And I was convinced for years and years that I didn't do it. And then as I got older, I got to think, what if I did do it and I didn't remember doing it? So in this first story, my observation, seeing two Santa Clauses or three, I I began to question the theory. But now when I observe something, sometimes I question what I'm observing. There's a balance between them, and it, it's very important because when it comes to this, this great big economic question that I'll get to, there's the theory, there's the observation of what is happening, and then we have to decide. The Congressional Budget Office recently released its 2017 long-term budget outlook in which it projected that if laws generally remain unchanged, ongoing annual budget deficits would cause U.S. federal debt held by the public as a percent of U.S. gross domestic product, or GDP, to balloon to 150% in 2047 from 77% today. The report includes the dire warning that, quote, the prospect of such large and growing debt poses substantial risk for the nation, end quote. Specifically, the CBO believes that if the national debt rose to the level it is projecting, it would, quote, hurt the economy 
and increase the likelihood of a fiscal crisis in which investors become unwilling to finance a government's borrowing unless they are compensated with very high interest rates, end quote. The CBO states that the resulting jump in interest rates, quote, would reduce the market value of outstanding government securities and investors could lose money. The resulting losses from mutual funds, pension funds, insurance companies, banks and other holders of government debt might be large enough to cause some financial institutions to fail, creating a fiscal crisis, end quote. That's scary. Now, the Congressional Budget Office is a nonpartisan entity that produces, according to the website, independent analysis of budgetary and economic issues to support the congressional budget process. The fact that the CBO is nonpartisan does not mean the organization does not have a point of view. It does. It has a theoretical bias about how the global economy and financial system operate. We need to understand what that bias is in order to analyze their their conclusions. The CBO believes large budget deficits require the federal government to borrow more money from the private sector to finance the deficit. It writes, if the government borrowed more, more people's savings would be used to buy treasury securities and thus private investment would be crowded out. Crowded out. That's a key term. In other words, there would be, according to the CBO, less private savings, including bank deposits, which businesses could borrow in order to invest in productivity enhancing projects because so much money would be sitting in government bonds. The CBO writes, with less investment in capital goods, factories and computers, for example, workers would be less productive because productivity growth is the main driver of growth in people's compensation, decreased Investment also would reduce average compensation per hour, offering people less incentive to work. The CBO's view and that of many economists is that a limiting constraint on the economy is the amount of money. A higher federal debt level means the government sucks up an increasing percentage of the limited money supply, leaving less for the private sector to save and invest. In order to entice investors to finance these ever larger budget deficits, interest rates will have to increase. This, in turn, will result in less investment by private businesses in productive projects that can increase economic growth. That's because the return on investment for individual projects will have to be greater than it would otherwise in order to pay higher interest costs on the debt used to fund the project. Higher hurdle rates would mean fewer viable investment projects, which means lower productivity for the entire economy and lower wages for workers. If the economy doesn't become more productive, if businesses are not able to produce more goods and services per hour of of labor, then then workers won't get wages. So if there is a limited supply of money, then the federal government could indeed crowd out private sector investment as annual budget deficits reduce private sector savings. This is the most important question of our time, the most important economic question. Is the supply of money limited or is it unlimited? Because if it's limited, then we can have crowding out of the private sector. Interest rates could skyrocket. Bond prices would plunge and that we could have a fiscal crisis and it could lead to economic growth. So that's a theory. 
and we have to look at the observation. Now, where there's a theory, and I've done episodes on the national debt, and you kind of know where I stand. I do not believe that there is a limited supply of money. Some would call me, well, Michael Tanner, for example, of the Cato Institute, not that I've met him, but I just read his book or started reading his book. He would call me a debt denier because I do not believe in the the terrible ramifications of the national debt. But I choose to read his book because I want to see what the argument is because I have the observation and I have the theory, but I could be wrong. And so I want to read and learn what the other side is saying. What is the basis for their argument? So he has a book. He's a Michael Tanner. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. His book is called Going for Broke. He writes, government borrowing tends to crowd out private investment because a dollar borrowed by the government is a dollar no longer available for private use. If the government takes it, then a business, the private sector, cannot borrow that dollar and there's crowding out and there's this competition. And with this, if, and if there's a competition to borrow money, rates potentially could, could go up because there wouldn't be enough savings for the private sector to borrow. Tanner compares the federal government to a family sitting around the kitchen table discussing their household budget and realizing they spend more than they bring in and that if they've been borrowing, as he says, the rest and living off credit cards for years. That same family has not put anything away for unexpected expenses and has promised to pay their children's college tuition and will have responsibility for their aging parents. He writes, if the U.S. government were a family, that's pretty much the situation it would find itself in. Except the U.S. government isn't a family. It's a sovereign entity with its own currency, printing press, and central bank that oversees a private banking system that has the ability to create an endless supply of money. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke wrote in 2002, Under a fiat, that is, paper money system, a government, in practice a central bank in cooperation with other agencies, should always be able to generate increased nominal spending and inflation. The U.S. government has a technology called a printing press, or today its electronic equivalent that allows it to produce as many U.S. dollars as it wishes at essentially no cost. Bernanke also wrote, money is special. It's not only a zero interest liability, but also a perpetual liability. If you pull out a dollar bill across every piece of U.S. issued paper, the words are written on the top, Federal Reserve Note. A note in this context is a debt instrument issued by the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank. Does this paper note pay interest? No. Can you turn it into the Federal Reserve and redeem it for gold or for some other form of payment? No. If you brought a bag full of $100 bills to the Federal Reserve, the bank, central bank, would either exchange it for more cash or credit your bank account for the same amount. In other words, dollars are indeed perpetual liabilities of the federal government as issued by its bank, the U.S. Federal Reserve. Here's how Columbia University economist Michael Woodford puts it. 
He wrote, a government that issues debt denominated in its own currency is in a different situation from that of private borrowers in that its debt is a promise only to deliver more of its own liabilities. A treasury bond is simply a promise to pay dollars at various future dates, but these dollars are simply additional government liabilities that happen to be non-interest earning. There is no there is thus no possible doubt about the government's technical ability to deliver what it has promised. The federal government can create an unlimited supply of money. And how does it do that? It does it by spending. Pavlina R. Chaturneva of the Levi Economics Institute wrote, When the Treasury spends, non-government entities who receive the income also receive brand new bank deposits. This is because the Federal Reserve clears the government expenditures. It credits private bank accounts with reserves. What does that mean? Well, that means that when the government spends money, it's all done electronically. They make a payment. It clears to the Federal Reserve that puts that deposit in the bank account of the entity. There is no need to wait for the money from a technical standpoint. We're going to look at what happens operationally, but from a technical standpoint, since it's all electronic digits, that's how money is created. Government spending creates new bank deposits for the private sector. It doesn't have to find the money. The money is created through this accounting entity cleared by the Federal Reserve. Bank deposits, like paper currency, are also perpetual liabilities. Although in the case of bank deposits, the bank may elect to pay some interest on them. When the government issues a treasury bond, all that is happening is non-interest-bearing notes, dollars, are converted into interest-bearing assets. Likewise, when commercial banks make loans, they also create new bank deposits, which is a liability of the bank, while offsetting it on its accounting books with a new asset called a loan receivable. And I discussed that in a great deal of detail on episode 94, how money is created and destroyed. So if the money supply is unlimited, then federal spending does not crowd out the private sector. But if it is, then it does crowd out the private sector, and that could lead to ballooning interest rates. So what do we do? We have to actually observe what is happening. Before we look at some observations, let me share some words from this week's sponsor. If you're looking for a central location to get the key information on the markets, the pulse of what's going on, I can't think of a better spot than Yahoo Finance. I was just there, could see very quickly what happened today, how stocks sank to end their worst month of 2024. I could see the actual market declines for the US, Europe, Asia, what interest rates did, commodities, currencies. I could see holdings of mine that I recently viewed and key headlines from leading financial publications all in one place, one screen at Yahoo Finance without any annoying pop-ups. Plus, with Yahoo Finance, you can get a consolidated view of all your investments and retirement accounts, all in one place. The key to investing is access to quality information, and you can get that at Yahoo Finance. They've completely redesigned the website. It's comprehensive, it's high quality, and it can help you with your investing. 
So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash David. On September 21st, 2016, the Bank of Japan, Japan's central bank, made a startling announcement. They announced a new policy framework, and I'm quoting from their press release. It consists of two major components. The first is yield curve control, in which the bank will control short and long-term interest rates. And the second is inflation overshooting commitment, in which the bank commits itself to expanding the monetary base until the year-on-year rate of increase in the observed consumer price index, inflation, exceeds this price stability target of 2% and stays above that target in in a stable manner. What are they saying? They're saying they're going to control interest rates and they're going to create enough money to start to to spark higher inflation. How are they going to do that in terms of controlling interest rates? They go, they say in the press release, the bank will purchase Japanese government bonds so that 10-year JGB yields, that's short for Japanese government bonds, will remain more or less at the current level around 0%. That's what they said six months ago, more than six months ago. And you know where the Japanese 10-year treasury is? It is right around 0%. The highest it's got was early this February at 0.1%. This is from a country with the highest public debt balance in the world, the highest gross debt to GDP in terms of their national debt, 238%. That's what it was in 2015. Here's an article. This was in a Bloomberg, and I'll quote. This is uh, Martin Schultz. He's a senior economist at Fujitsu Research Institute in Tokyo. He says, Japan is a country where public debt is in private hands is falling the fastest anywhere. While Japan's estimated gross government debt is now over twice the size of the economy, as I mentioned, 240%. According to Schultz's calculation, using BOJ data, data, the shuffle of holdings from private actors like banks and households to the central bank is having a big impact. 
It means debt in private hands will fall to about 100% of GDP in two to three years, from 177% just before Prime Minister Shinzo Abe took power in late 2012. That's what he estimates. So the, the Bank of Japan is buying government bonds. It is monetizing the debt. At the same time, it's controlling interest rates. It is doing the exact opposite, or it, what, what's occurring is in, in observation is, is not what's supposed to happen in terms of we're not, they're not facing this fiscal crisis where interest rates are skyrocketing despite the high debt balances. Another quote from the article, this is by Adair Turner, who's chairman of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He writes, I do not believe there is any incredible, any credible scenario in which Japanese government debt can be repaid in the normal sense of the word repay. It would therefore be useful to make clear to the Japanese people that the public debt does not all have to be repaid since some of it can be permanently monetized by the Bank of Japan. That's exactly what's happening. They are monetizing the debt and controlling interest rates. That's what we're observing. And that contradicts the theory, at least as put out by many economists, that, that there is a limited supply of money and that the private that the public sector is crowding out the private sector because the central bank is creating the money to buy those bonds and they're creating the money to buy the bonds so they can control interest rates and they have been successful. Now, we're going to have to continue to observe and see how these things play out. But as of now, the theory and the logic as we walk through how the banking system works says that the federal government can create unlimited supply of money, that the private banking sector that is overseen by the Federal Reserve can create an unlimited supply of money through their lending activities. And so there is not a crowding out. And so it is not a given that interest rates will spike and that the, the federal debt will, be, will go get out of control because here we have the largest country in the world, Japan, or the largest debt balance in the world, and they'll be able to, to pull down that public debt balance as a percent of GDP as they monetize debt. And they've not seen inflation. And Japan's economy, while it does obviously have its issues, has been doing relatively well on a per capita basis. They struggle because the demographics are not in their favor. The population is shrinking, and that makes it hard to grow the overall economy because they don't have more workers. But at the same time, they are becoming more productive. And GDP per capita since 1991, so over the past 25 years, so the amount of economic output per person has grown at 0.7%. That's real growth per capita GDP, 0.7%. It's gone from $40,000 in 1991 to $47,641 at the end of 2016. That's using $2,005, and obviously they converted the yen to the dollar. You compare that to the U.S., it's gone from $37,500 in 1991 to $52,195 per person in 20, at the end of 2016. So about a 1.3% growth rate. So a little higher for the U.S., but Japan, you know, they're hanging in there. In 2015, I read the book Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. It's apocalyptic. It was disturbing. It, it had governments collapsing, roving gangs, corruption, 
Jack Dawes, which is a terrifying name, not enough food. And, and I, it was, it was, it was a little scary. And I was reminded of that the other day when I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that talked about Venezuela and their people are starving. The article profiled Jean-Pierre Planchard, who's a year old. He's got a drawn face, and I'm reading from the article now, of an old man and a cry that is a little more than a whimper. His ribs show through his skin. He weighs just 11 pounds. His mother, Maria Planchard, tried to feed him what she could find combing through the trash, scraps of chicken or potatoes. She finally took him to the hospital in Caracas, where she prays a rice milk concoction keeps her son alive. I watched him sleep and sleep, getting weaker all the time, losing weight. She said, I never thought I'd see Venezuela like this. Her country was once Latin America's richest producing food for export. Venezuela now can't grow enough food to feed its own people in an economy hobbled by the nationalization of private farms and price and currency controls. Venezuela has the world's highest inflation, 720% last year. It's rising at at least 20% a month. In this year, since 2013, the economy has shrunk 27 percent, according to local investment bank Torino Capital. The article goes on and says hordes of people, many with children in tow, rummaged through garbage, an uncommon sight a year ago. People in the countryside pick farms clean at night, stealing everything from fruits hanging on trees to pumpkins on the ground, adding to the misery of farmers hurt by shortages of seed and fertilizer. Looters target food stores, family padlock their refrigerators. What in the world is going on in Venezuela? The Venezuela government can create money, but they have a problem. The wealth of a nation is their ability to produce goods and services. And Venezuela's ability to do that has been completely undermined by corruption, by the state taking over many private businesses, by putting in private price controls, They have essentially destroyed their own economy by trying to manage it from the top down. They've taken over, they've taken over 2,700, no, 1,400 private businesses the government has expropriated since 1998. Recently, GM plant, the car plant was shut down, taken over by the Venezuelan authorities, and GM laid off 2,700. Hundred workers. The Wall Street Journal article profiled a a, a pog farmer, Alberto Trioni or Troiani. He's forty eight. He works at the hog farm that his father, an Italian immigrant, founded in the nineteen seventies. His business has now been battered by price controls, a shortage of supply, and criminal criminal gangs. The farm has gone from two hundred female pigs, each producing a dozen piglets, to fifty. Mr. Troiani can't afford the high-protein feed and medicines he once used. Full-grown pigs now weigh 175 pounds instead of 240. We used to send 120 to 150 pigs a month to slaughter, Mr. Troiani said. Now it's 50, 60 animals, a joke. He makes 93 cents per kilogram or 2.2 pounds of meat, he said, but needs $1.17 to make a profit. Since 2012, 82% of Venezuela pig producers have closed and production has fallen 71% according to industry representatives. The agricultural companies the government has taken over, including milk factories and distributors of fertilizer and feed, are closed or barely operating, according to economists and farm groups. That's the Wall Street Journal. 
That that's scary. That that is what's happening in Venezuela. And now they're having massive protest and we'll see what happens. A big problem with with Venezuela is they have the largest oil reserves in the world, but it's been mismanaged and their 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 economy's been mismanaged for decades. There's a policy paper put out by the Cato Institute. I'll link to this in the show notes as well as the other articles I've mentioned or if you remember my free insider's guide I will have emailed you those show notes in a summary article. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide at moneyfortherestofus.com on the homepage. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word insider to the number 44222. So this, this policy paper talked about Venezuela. So Venezuela went from being one of the most well-off countries in Latin America and worldwide in the 1950s to a period of stagnation and even decline. Over two decades, its real income per capita declined by 25%. In 1988, 2.4% of Venezuelans were living below the poverty line. But by 1998, when Hugo Chavez was elected president, that figure had risen to 18.5%, which is one reason he was elected and was able to implement a form of socialism and or communism. The article goes on. Few people realize that Venezuela's current oil reserves are the largest in the world. They are about a dozen times larger than what Venezuela had at its disposal in the 1980s. Venezuela has been hurt by falling oil prices at the same time a large percentage of their national debt is foreign debt. It's denominated in U.S. dollars, which doesn't give them the flexibility that the U.S. has or Japan has, where their debt is denominated in their own currency, so it can be monetized, and so they can control interest rates. Venezuela doesn't have that flexibility, and they've mismanaged their economy, and they've tried to control it from the top down, and the, the wealth has been dissipated because their wealth is their ability to produce goods and services, and now, literally, their people are starving, and it is very, very sad. So back to the most important economic question of our time. Can the federal government that issues its own currency and has its debt denominated in its own currency, can it create an unlimited supply of money? Can it control interest rates? Can it not crowd out the private sector? Absolutely. And we're seeing it happen. We're seeing it happen in Japan. But does that mean the federal government can do anything it wants, create an unlimited supply of money? No. The constraint is the ability of the private sector to produce goods and services. And if too much money is created, that definitely will lead to inflation and can lead to market interest rates, even though maybe the government bond rates controlled market interest rates for borrowing debt will be much, much higher. And so the constraint is the government's ability to make sure inflation is kept in check, that not too much money is created and not undermine the private sector's ability to become more productive and to continue to use their ingenuity and, and hire more workers. We should be more focused on big, important issues of how to increase productivity by focusing on our educational system, how can we have more educated students? How can we get more people out of poverty so they have more opportunities, so they can be productive workers? Why is it the healthcare cost, as pointed out by Warren Buffett, in the U.S. as a percent of GDP is 17.1%? 
significantly higher than other developed countries, such as Germany at 11.3%, Japan at 10.2%, Britain at 9.1%. That is a, that's a, that's a competitive disadvantage the U.S. has relative to other countries in terms of their productivity, their ability to compete. Those are issues we should be focusing on, not some issue that's many years down the road uh, regarding the national debt that to date has not proven, has proven to be unfounded. We're not having a financial crisis, a fiscal crisis in the U.S., nor in Japan. And if we look at how the financial system actually works, and not how it worked 50 years ago when we were on, we were on the gold standards, where there was the inability of the government to create unlimited amounts of money, and they could crowd out the private sector because every dollar could be exchanged for gold. Now money is digital. It's electronic. The federal government has a printing press, an electronic printing press. Private banks create money by lending. So the constraint is not their ability to create money in service debt. The constraint is making sure we have responsible government that they're not creating too much money and leading to inflation. That's episode 157. You can get show notes, as I mentioned, at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.